910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, with hosts Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. At Proverbs 910 Ministries, we are dedicated to taking out the trash of false teaching and replacing it with biblical truth. Welcome back. You know, Chris, there's been something in the news lately that's really ticked me off. I'm shocked. Just one thing? (laughs) Well, quite a few things. But one thing lately has really set me off. And, you know, that's this talk about whether Christmas is going to be canceled or if people are going to be able to celebrate Christmas. It started with Dr. Fauci, who I'm not a fan of, no secret there. He was on CNN or something like that. And he was with this clueless anchor. And she's asking him if Christmas needed to be canceled because of COVID. She wanted his permission to see if we could have Christmas. And obviously, this guy Fauci has a huge God complex because he said, well, we'll just have to wait and sit. Honestly, I then can't I, take it. I can't take it either. And I keep seeing these ocean containers still out in the water. They're unable to be unloaded because of lack of labor. And some are even floating in the water because they've fallen off ships. And the caption is always that Christmas is going to be ruined because of supply chain issues. I get why it takes you off. It does me too. You know, who the heck is Dr. Fauci or anybody else that they think they can decide if Christmas is canceled (laughs) or if it's going to be ruined? You know, maybe the best thing for Christians this Christmas is to experience a shortage of toys and decorations and food for a feast and, you know, maybe not even be able to have big lavish parties. Not that there's anything wrong with any of those things. I'm not saying that at all. But if that's what you think is the most important thing about Christmas, you've got a lot more to worry about than merely catching COVID, but you shouldn't be worried about having, you know, less presents under the tree. Yeah, I I completely agree with that. And I mean, that's part of the reason we decided to do this series, Make Way for the King. You know, we thought all of us needed a reminder, including us, that nobody, not even the self-appointed savior, Dr. Fauci, can cancel or ruin Christmas. Nobody can cancel or ruin Christmas. So, you know, after spending 12 weeks on the very complex book of Daniel, this week we're beginning a seven-week series looking at the earthly life of Christ, and we've called the series Make Way for the King. And if you think studying Jesus is less complex, well, you couldn't be more wrong. Uh, Jesus definitely wins the award for the most complex person in scripture or of all time. You know, case in point, we've done an episode on Jesus being fully man and fully God. We've done 12 episodes on Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. And we've even done four episodes on the parable that Jesus told about the prodigal son. Not to mention that we show how every bit of scripture points to Jesus in just about all of the 112 episodes that we have done. But that still doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of who Jesus is or, you know, his life and his missions while he walked the earth for 33 years. All right. And if we explore Jesus in every episode for the rest of our lives, we still will, won't have exhausted all there is to know about him. No. But for this episode, uh, in honor of celebrating the birth of our Savior, we thought we'd spend the rest of the year looking at different aspects of Jesus's life, his ministry, his teaching and his mission while he physically was on earth. And Chris, you just mentioned things we've already discussed in detail. So we're not going to be looking at what it means that Jesus is both fully God and fully man, the Sermon on the Mount, the prodigal son parable. However, probably parts of those things are going to show up in the next seven episodes. We just won't go into detail. 
Right, exactly. So, you know, we always say the place to start is at the beginning. So let's start at the beginning, sort of. Jesus, fully God, has no beginning. Uh, John tries to help us grasp Jesus's divinity by starting at a beginning, not Jesus's beginning, but the beginning of creation. John 1.1 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He is directly referencing Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, Rose, when you put those two statements together, you get, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus was with God at creation and participated in creation because Jesus is God. Right. And obviously, John knew full well that Jesus, fully God, had no beginning. But his statement in John 1, as well as Genesis 1, 1, gives our finite minds a time reference to help us better understand the triune God. As humans, we live within the space of time. Our whole life is based on time. God, however, is not constrained by time. And that's a concept that's hard for our human minds to grasp. That being said, though, while Jesus fully God has no beginning, Jesus fully man does. He has no end, but he has a beginning. And that's what we're going to talk about today. But as we said, Jesus is complex, and that includes the person of Jesus, too. So we need to start before his actual physical birth. Right. We just finished an extensive history lesson in the last couple episodes of Reading Between the Lions. We alluded to how God used oppression of the Greek and later Roman empires to further his plan for the coming promised Messiah. And we're going to look a little bit deeper into what God was doing through secular history to prepare the world for the coming of Jesus. But first, let's flip back a bit to the Old Testament in the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. This little book is only four chapters long. The first three chapters is God rebuking the Israelites for their continued unfaithfulness. Chapter three begins with these words. And I'm quoting here. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And then God answers his own question in Malachi 3, 16 to 18. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. The book of Malachi and the Old Testament end with these words. These are the last words in the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Okay, so why is this important? Well, these are the last words the Jewish people or anyone heard from God for 400 years. Think about how long, how long that is. <laughs> his last words to his people were a rebuke, a restoration promise, and then a sign to look for. Yet the vast majority missed all three. 
knowing what happened in history during these 400 years can help us better understand the world that Jesus was born into. In the series in the book of Daniel, we already talked about how the promised land was located smack dab in the middle of the Seleucid and Ptolemaic empires and were in the crosshairs of their many wars. We also saw how first Alexander the Great and then later Antiochus Epiphanes wanted the Jews to stop practicing their religion and convert to Hellenism. Shortly after Antiochus Epiphanes' death, the Greek Empire fell to the Roman Republic in the battle in 146 BC. Right. And the Roman Republic rose and became the Roman Empire. And they took control of Judah and the Promised Land in 63 BC. Even though the Roman Empire lets them practice Judaism, the Jews cry out to God to send a king to defeat the Romans and release them from their oppression. Because of the oppression, the Jewish people began to migrate and disperse to many different regions because of persecution. They were no longer a centralized people in one place. This helped prepare for Jesus as it allowed the gospel to spread faster and to more regions. Also during this time, 72 Jewish scholars secluded themselves on an island where they transcribed the entire Old Testament from the original Hebrew and Aramaic into Greek, and their translation is called the Septuagint. They chose Greek because Greek was kind of the English of the day. And remember, beginning back in 330 BC, we said Alexander the Great pushed to Hellenize people that included speaking Greek. So almost everyone who was educated had some kind of working knowledge of Greek. That's why the New Testament is also written in Greek. Thanks to these scholars, the Old Testament was now readable to those Jewish people who could no longer read Hebrew or Aramaic because they had dispersed, and it's also readable to Gentiles. That certainly helped prepare for Jesus because it allowed more people to read scripture and understand why Jesus had come. In addition, it opened the door for Paul and others to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, offering them the opportunity to become part of the family of God, as was prophesied in the Old Testament. Fast forward to around 6 BC and the fulfillment of the final prophecy of Malachi that God would send Elijah the prophet to make way for the one true king. This is John the Baptist, a relative of Jesus. But let's stop for a minute because this is sometimes misinterpreted. There's no such thing as reincarnation. So John was not Elijah reincarnated. And besides, if you remember the story, Elijah didn't actually die. He was taken to heaven in a chariot while still alive. When God said he would send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, he meant he would send a prophet in the spirit of Elijah. Elijah's mission was to announce the coming of the Messiah. That's what John's mission was too. In Luke 1.17, it says, John will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Chris, that's almost a direct quote from Malachi 4.5. Absolutely. Scripture seems like it might be contradictory. We just saw that the Malachi prophecy meant that someone, John, would come in the spirit of Elijah. However, in Matthew 11, 13 to 14, Jesus says John is Elijah. He says, and I'm quoting here, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, He is Elijah who is to come. Now, add that to John's outright rejection of being Elijah when asked directly in John 1.21. So how do we reconcile these things? How do we reconcile these three things together? 
There's a key phrase in Jesus's identification of John the Baptist that you cannot overlook. He says, if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah. In other words, John the Baptist's identification as Elijah was not predicated upon him being the actual Elijah, but upon people's response to his role in the spirit of Elijah. To those who were willing to believe in Jesus, John the Baptist functioned as Elijah because John paved the way for Jesus. To the religious leaders who rejected Jesus, John the Baptist did not perform this function. And John outright rejects being Elijah because the Pharisees ask him if he is literally Elijah. And he says no. He says, though, he's the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. So he's acknowledging that he is functioning in the spirit of Elijah. But like I said, he's not literally Elijah. That's why he tells him, no, I'm not. <laughs> it doesn't get much clearer than no, I'm not. No. It would be like someone saying, are you Chris Paxson? <laughs> no, but I, I function in the spirit of Chris <laughs> yeah, Paxson. <laughs> I do. We think alike. And That's right. Alike. <laughs> okay. Before we delve into Jesus's birth narrative, let's look at how each gospel handles it. Matthew gives us a birth narrative, but before that, he gives Jesus's genealogy. This is the genealogy of Joseph, Jesus's stepfather. And Matthew's purpose is that before he gives details of the birth of Jesus, he wants his Jewish audience to understand who Jesus is, the promised Jewish Messiah. What he does include about Jesus's birth are fulfillments of prophecies we find in the Old Testament. And again, to solidify for the Jews that Jesus is the promised Savior, Luke also gives a genealogy of Jesus in chapter 3, but it's the lineage through Mary, not Joseph, who also is from the house of David. And this is to show that Jesus's lineage on both sides is completely solid from Judah and from David. Absolutely. But let's talk about Mark. Mark, on the other hand, skips over Jesus's genealogy and birth narrative and dives right into John the Baptist, beginning his ministry of preparing the way for Jesus. Since Mark is writing to a mostly Roman audience and is writing to portray Jesus as the servant king, he begins Jesus's earthly life narrative at the beginning of Jesus's mission. We already looked at how John begins his gospel by identifying Jesus as God and being present and active in the creation of the world. So that just leaves Luke to talk about. It. He has the most extensive and detailed narrative on Jesus's birth, probably why we hear it at Christmas, right? Right. You know, Luke is writing to the Gentiles. He needs to fully explain things because most of them would have no clue about the Old Testament prophecies of Jesus. That's right. And we're going to mostly look at Luke, but we'll certainly reference Matthew's account too, because he has things in there that Luke doesn't. You all probably know the story of John the Baptist's birth foretold. His father, Zechariah, a country priest, got his big shot to serve as high priest and make atonement for the people's sin. While he's in there doing that, the angel tells him that his wife, Elizabeth, is going to have a son and they're going to name him John. Zechariah doubts this. He says, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And that's from Luke 1.18. As punishment for his doubt, he struck mute until John is born and he tells everyone his name is to be John. Then they open his mouth. So now let's get more into the birth of Jesus foretold. You know, the virgin birth of Jesus has been attacked by Christians for centuries. Some even say belief in the virgin birth is embarrassing, and they have spent a whole lifetime and lots of energy trying to prove that there was nothing supernatural about Christ's birth. 
But besides it being completely ridiculous to think that God couldn't impregnate a woman who's a virgin, the apostles had no doubt that Jesus's miraculous conception was real. And Mary herself was as surprised as any woman would be if she was told that she was pregnant without having ever been with a man. So I'd be a little surprised. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. Uh, Mary knew she was a virgin and that it was ordinary ordinarily impossible for virgins to conceive and bear children. That's right. I only know of this one. (laughs) I only know of that one too. So let's read the account. Gabriel the angel, and you remember Gabriel is the one who appeared to Daniel a couple of times. He comes to Mary and he tells her in Luke 1, 30 to 33, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Okay, so let's unpack a few things here. Why was God having Jesus born of a virgin? Was it just to make his birth special and miraculous? Yeah, but that's not the only reason. Remember that since the fall of Adam and Eve, every human is born with an inherent sin nature. That sinful nature makes it impossible for a fallen human being, one conceived and born through ordinary means I'm talking about, to atone for sin. As Paul tells us in Romans 5, 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So God overcame this problem through virginal conception of Jesus. He provided a fully human mediator as he had to be to atone for human sin, who is not tainted by Adam's sin. Right. And as John 1, 14 tells us, in the incarnation, the son of God, the word truly became flesh. He took on true human nature, and he did so without inheriting the inborn sin nature because he wasn't conceived the way every other human being is. Chris, we talk about the essentials of Christianity and how regardless if you differ on secondary or tertiary issues in the Bible, you cannot differ on the essentials. And Mostly that's because the Bible makes the essentials so crystal clear, there's only one possible interpretation of them. Well, Jesus's virginal birth is one of those essential truths. Belief in the virginal birth is crucial to salvation, for this miracle is the means by which God gave us a sinless mediator. So anyone professing to be a Christian, yet saying they don't believe in the virgin birth, they're lying. They're not a Christian. No, I mean, you can't believe Christianity and not believe that truth. It's essential. All right, so let's take a minute and talk about Mary. We did a two-part series on her, so we won't go into great detail about it here, but Gabriel calls her favored one. The text says that Mary is greatly troubled by this greeting. It's probably more accurate to say that she was confused or felt unworthy at such a title you know, probably like any of us would be. Yeah. Why was she chosen? Well, at about 14 years old, she may have been a godly, faithful girl, but she was chosen ultimately for the same reason that every other person in the Bible and in history was chosen to be used by God because it pleased God to do so. To her credit, unlike Zachariah, she doesn't doubt what the angel told her. 
She only asks how it will come to be because she's a virgin. And I, like you said, that would be, it seems strange. And demonstrating even further, or, you know, her faith, she says, behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your words. And Mary was betrothed to Joseph at this time. And here's how the betrothal thing worked then. In that day, a Jewish marriage began in two stages. First came the betrothal. The man and the woman, standing before chosen witnesses, gave their formal consent to marry one another. By this exchange of vows, they became legally married, and it was appropriate to call each other husband and wife. And in fact, the NIV translation uses the word husband and wife for Joseph and Mary when they're talking about the story. But it was usually another year before the second stage of marriage was reached. During that time, the girl, who was usually 13 or 14, that's why we think that's how old Mary was, continued to live with her parents. This is where we are in the story of Jesus's birth being foretold. The second stage hadn't been reached yet. Joseph hadn't taken Mary to his home and he hadn't lived with her yet. They hadn't consummated the marriage. But here's something to note. You know, while God's plan is for Jesus to be born of a virgin, it wasn't to be born of a single woman. And I think we miss that sometimes. Mary's already betrothed. God sends Jesus to be born into a family. So even without having a biological father, God is sending the message that Jesus having an earthly father is very important. That's a great point to make. And I think we do miss it. And not, we're not saying anything about single mothers. Uh, you know, they have tough jobs. Absolutely. But see what God's design is. Yes. Here again, you know, so it's showing us his design again. That's a great point, And one that does get missed. I would say also we should note that God doesn't give us the details about how Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Luke 135's description is pretty ambiguous. It says the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And Matthew 118 is no better. It simply says that Mary was found to be with child. God did not feel it necessary to give us details about how it worked out. But one thing we can say with absolute certainty is that it was not like in Genesis 6, 1 to 4, where the sons of God took the daughters of man to be their wives. To suggest that the spirit mated with Mary, as pagan myths often said, or pagan gods did, is a disgusting perversion of that. And it has no basis in scripture whatsoever. It's the utmost in blasphemy towards God. And it reduces something beautiful and holy and mysterious into something absurd and wrong. Yep, absolutely. So Joseph finds out that his wife, his betrothed, for all intents and purposes, is pregnant and decides to divorce her quietly. Now, Mosaic law said a woman caught in adultery, along with the man, were to be stoned to death. But Joseph isn't pursuing that, and yet is still called righteous. So how can he blatantly disregard the law and still be called righteous or just? Well, righteousness and justice here are used in regards to his compassion and his mercy for Mary. There was no man to convict along with her, for one thing. And you know what? Joseph probably loved her. He didn't want to see her publicly disgraced and possibly stoned to death. So he chose mercy over judgment. And here's the interesting thing. James, Jesus's brother and Joseph's biological son, picks up on this in his book. In James 2.13, 
James says, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Love that. You know, Joseph, like Mary, shows himself to be godly. We see it again when he readily accepts what the angel tells him about Mary's baby. And again, Matthew takes the time to show how all of this is fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 7:14, which says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. After the visit from Gabriel, Mary went with haste, as Luke says, to visit her uh, relative Elizabeth, who was pregnant with John the Baptist. The text says that when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord shall come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now, Elizabeth has no way of knowing anything that has transpired between Mary and Gabriel. This is her prophesying because she was filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, through Elizabeth, God is talking to Mary. And given all that had happened, that would have been an incredible comfort and encouragement for Mary. And it was, because right after this, she breaks out into a song praising God called the Magnificat. So Mary stays about three months, which would be about the time right after John the Baptist's birth. Sometime after she returns home, a decree comes out from Caesar Augustus that everyone needed to be registered in their hometown. This was all about tax collection. And when we look at secular history, the biblical account of a census ordered by Caesar Augustus is consistent with the type of registrations history records that he decreed. And as we see in Matthew's lineage and Old Testament prophecy, Joseph is from the house of David, and so he must return to Bethlehem to register for this. This fulfills several prophecies, including Micah 5, 2 to 5 says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So Joseph takes a very pregnant Mary to Bethlehem with him. The trip was about 90 miles. They would have begun by going south along the flatlands of the Jordan River and then turned west over the hills surrounding Jerusalem before going into Bethlehem. A man who regularly leads excavation parties along this same route says that even now it's a grueling trip. So for them, it would have been extremely grueling. You know, I can't imagine what this trek would be like under normal conditions, but there's Mary, very pregnant. So they reach Bethlehem only to find out there's not a room to be rented anywhere. And, you know, Chris, if I think I were Mary, I would have just collapsed and cried. Yeah, I agree. Because I would want on my little Hilton app to, <laughs> you know, or whatever. Mary, I don't matter. I don't want to be checking into my room. That's right. But the funny thing is, this fact is only mentioned in Luke, and it's only one line. But it's a big deal. There's an object lesson about this, and it's an object lesson about Jesus's ministry. That there's no room for them is an object lesson that the world has no place for a savior. Their hearts were too filled with corruption, darkness, and sin. Jesus would be rejected by a lot of the Jews, and 
the educated world, quote unquote, you know, instead, like the dirty stable he had to be born in, he was going to bring his message to the outcasts, the rejects, and those who knew they were sinners. The deplorables. The deplorables. And we can just be thankful. Yes. And we see this, you know, we see this by who are the first to receive the news about his birth. God chose shepherds, both because they are lowly in their social status and because the significance shepherding is going to play in his ministry, obviously. Here's what Got Questions says about shepherds. A shepherd during the time of the Old Testament was often but not always a child. Whatever his age, the shepherd's job was to protect his flock and guide them to good pastures with plenty of food and slow-moving, easily accessible water. During biblical times, families in the Middle East relied on sheep to provide food, wool, and sheepskin. Because sheep were so valuable, shepherds would stay with the flock to protect them day and night. Frequently, the youngest boy in the family served as a shepherd until he grew older and could do harder manual labor. You know, throughout scripture, when even one angel appeared to someone, they would always say, don't be afraid. Kind of gives you the idea that people must have been terrified when they saw one. <laughs> yeah. Well, here, these shepherds see a multitude of angels. We don't know how many a multitude is numerically, but it was enough to fill them with great fear, as Luke tells us. But their terror doesn't last long. The angel says one of the most beautiful passages in all of scripture to them. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those whom he is pleased. The shepherds rushed to go and see the promised Messiah. And I love this part. After a pregnancy that probably had a lot of people snickering at her and maybe even shunning her, and then a 90-mile trek over a really rough terrain, only to arrive at Bethlehem and then find that the best you can do to have your baby in is a dirty, smelly stable, Luke says that Mary treasured up all these things pondering them in her heart. We see Mary truly having a mother's heart here. The minute that she saw the precious baby, she quickly forgot the pain and anguish she had endured. Following Jewish law, eight days after birth, they circumcised and officially named Jesus. According to the law of Moses, 40 days after giving birth to a boy, 60 days for a girl, a husband and wife would present their child at the temple. Leviticus 12, 6 to 8 says, and when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering and a pigeon or turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons. So Jesus would have been around 40 days old when they bring him to the temple to present it. In addition, they brought him to the temple because according to Mosaic law, the firstborn of every living thing, including humans, belonged to God. According to Numbers 18, 15 to 16, 
Everything that opens the womb of all flesh, whether man or beast, which they offer to the Lord, shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall redeem, and their redemption price, at a month old you shall redeem them, you shall fix at five shekels in silver. So Luke tells us both of these things in Luke 2, 22 to 24. And while they're at the temple, we see they meet two people, Simeon and Anna. Now, Simeon is described as righteous and devout, according to Luke. And he had the Holy Spirit upon him while he was waiting for the promised Messiah, whom God had promised he would see, actually, before he died. So when Mary and Joseph enter the temple, he sees them and takes the baby in his arm, and he prophesies. And here's what he says. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. He goes on to say, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. The Holy Spirit gave Simeon full comprehension of who Jesus is and what his mission was going to be. He even sees that Jesus's mission is going to cause Mary's own heart to be pierced, and that's a foreshadowing of Jesus's crucifixion. Right, and in classic Luke style of having an example with a woman after a man, or a man after a woman, whatever, there's also a woman there named Anna. She's at the temple too. After being married only seven years, her husband died and she spent the rest of her life at the temple worshiping God by fasting and praying. She was 84 when she encounters the baby Jesus. She thanks God and then begins to speak of Jesus to all of those who, like her, were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So flipping back to Matthew's gospel, we don't know exactly how long, but Mary and Joseph stayed in Bethlehem for some time. They moved out of the stable and were probably running a house. At some point after Jesus' birth, the wise men received a sign about the baby. They have been called kings, but they were also probably astrologers or astronomers to be able to interpret the stars in the sky. They're wise because despite not being Jewish, they knew Jewish prophecy about the Messiah. And they make a very long journey to see Jesus, stopping at Herod's place on the way, and there's a few Herods in scripture. This is the Herod the Great, who reigned from 73 to 4 BC. And unknowingly, the wise men tip off Herod about Jesus, the king of the Jews, being born. And you're right, Chris, there are a few Herods in the Bible. This is Herod the Great. One of the things is all the Herods in the Bible are mentally deranged. This Herod, Herod the Great, was so paranoid that people wanted to take away his throne. He had already killed one of his wives, her mother two of her sons, and his own eldest son for fear they were trying to take his throne. So this led the Roman emperor Augustus, who did the census to begin with, he made this comment that it was safer to be Herod's pig than his son. That's bad. <laughs> That's pretty bad. So this psycho had no problem ordering all boys two years and younger to be slaughtered at the possibility that one of them might be a threat to his reign. You know, Matthew recounts this horrific incident because, again, it fulfills Old Testament prophecy spoken by Jeremiah. And here's the prophecy. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. 
Further fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, an angel appears to Joseph and tells him to take Mary and Jesus and go to Egypt to escape Herod's insanity. When this Herod dies by a kidney infection and complication of gonorrhea that caused gangrene of his genitals, the angel tells Joseph it's safe to return to Israel. This fulfills a prophecy in Hosea 11.1 1 that says, out of Egypt, I called my son. The Lord doesn't tell Joseph exactly where to go, just to return to the land of Israel. From there, Joseph makes his own rational decision. Herod's son, Archelaus, was reigning in Judea, so he doesn't go there after being warned in a dream. He goes to Galilee, to a city called Nazareth. Joseph made his own earthly decision to return to the, his hometown of Nazareth to settle his family, but God's sovereignty was all over it. As again, Matthew tells this fulfills an Old Testament prophecy that he would be called a Nazarene. Right. So why do we celebrate Christmas every year, even when Dr. Fauci or others say we shouldn't or we can't? Why do we sing the same familiar songs every year? Why do we recite the same passages like Isaiah 9-2 or Isaiah 9, 6 and 7? Why does the very thought of Christmas spark such joy in us? Well, hopefully the answer for us is the same for why we celebrate communion. It's a reminder. It's a reminder of the incredible love and mercy God has for his people. Christmas reminds us that Jesus left the glory and majesty of heaven to confine himself to a fleshy prison and put aside his glory to pay the penalty that we owed to God. From the very beginning, when there wasn't even a decent room for him to be born in, the world has hated him. He knew all this, and yet he came anyway. He came because of that. He came to show what the Old Testament clearly illustrates and what the New Testament cements. There's a distinct difference between the people of God and the rest of the world. You know, when I think about Jesus, God, forsaking so much and being born as a baby, it, it really does just blow my mind. You know, why not come into the world like he will the next time he comes? Why would he put himself in the position to be totally dependent upon earthly parents who were obviously loving, godly people, but you're still sinful? He did it out of love, out of love for us, out of love for you, out of love for me. He did it so that what's said about him in the book of Hebrews in chapter 2, 14 to 18 is completely true. And I'll read those verses. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And that's a great place for us to end today. Our prayer is that regardless of the circumstances this Christmas season, whether narcissistic doctors and politicians tell us we can't celebrate Christmas with our families or at church, or whether there isn't money or product to have presents under the tree, or even if our Christmas dinner is very modest, we pray that we will all rejoice in the true meaning of Christmas, Christ's birth. 
a cause of celebration and joy, no matter what else happens. So join us in the next episode as we continue to look at Jesus's earthly life and the start of his ministry. Have a blessed day, everyone.